Welcome to The Undiscovered Decade, a podcast where we take a look back at 30 years before this month to see what uh, anniversary it is for some sort of hidden gem. If you uh, think back to what you were doing, if you were alive in June 1993, I'm sure you would have been excited to see the biggest film ever before. Uh, This film reached the heights that had never been achieved before in box office success. Uh, It won multiple Academy Awards in the same year that its director would win Best Picture and several other prestigious awards for Schindler's List. Uh, Jurassic Park was a behemoth that could not be stopped. Rawr. But there's another film that came out that week. So it made the most sense to look into what that was. And uh, it was a little film called The Music of Chance, starred James Spader and Mandy Patinkin as two drifters that are forced to build a wall. It's basically the entire plot. Yeah. So uh, we'll get into a little bit more of what actually happens, but had you guys ever heard of this even? No, at all. Never heard of it. Yep. (laughs) Not a surprise. I mean, there's counter-programming, and then there's being buried by the biggest film in history. For a hidden gem, guys, guys, for a hidden gem that we've never heard of, would you say this movie's just another brick in the wall? Uh, Get him out of here. Get him out. To be released in the shadow of Jurassic Park, though, is a fate I would not wish on anyone. Get him out of there. (laughs) But, hey, but yeah. their uh, their wall wasn't electric powered, so you didn't have to worry about it breaking down and letting dinosaurs out. This was probably not even in a one hundredth of the theaters that yeah. Jurassic Park was in. This is, <laughs> I guarantee. Well, this is very much like an art film by today's standards. Oh, it's a, yeah, it was shot in four three standards. Yeah, it was four three. All right, uh, well, let's. Shall we explain the movie first? Sure. First of all, the movie uh, tricked me at the beginning because I thought that that score was diegetic, hmm. or or I thought it was on the it was yeah I thought it was part of the score and then it mm-hmm. turns out it was part of the radio. You know it. I was th- I thought I was doing something playful with the filmmaking technique at first. I was like, oh wait, that's a track he's listening to. That's at at the core. The story is about two good guys in a bad situation. Whoa, it's true. A very bad situation. Like the Actually, worst. or are they two bad guys in a good situation? Oh, no. They face Who's off two bad guys in a good situation. Are any of us good or bad? It's ambiguous whether Mandy Patankin's actually good because he alludes to something in his backstory, but you're not quite sure if he's telling the truth or not. Because they are both gamblers. All four. It's funny. That's... I looked into, I guess, the Wikipedia article of the original <clears throat> novel this is based off of. And there's a lot more detail to his past, and it makes a lot more sense. And it would have been nice to have known that. Yeah, true. Because <laughs> he would have gotten a little more character. I know Mandy's doing a decent job trying to convey any emotions or character, but he's doing a better job with his accent than even just Twitter, we know that. Just in and the we... first sentence of the Wikipedia article, it's like this is what happened to him and why he's on the road. <laughs> it leaves ambiguous though which i think kind of works for what he was going for with this it's movie 
It's yeah, clearly it what the filmmakers wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, it did give a little mystery to him. It was the way the filmmakers... Generally speaking. I I didn't love that, but... It's fine. You know, I think if it works, it works for people. You know, like, if you liked it better. That's the uh, design of ambiguity. Well, okay, let's start with the guy that directed this. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Was a sculptor. Yeah. Like, he was just mainly an artist, and so this was really the only film project he's ever done. Yeah, the other things that I guess he's it's done safe since it's dialogue driven. You've so. just never seen any of them. Yeah. Name's Philip Haas. So yeah, he's more of a he's more of an artist. He's so. not like Tom Ford, like moonlighting as a director, so that's mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, it's weird because it I, I wonder if the book has as long dialogue passages as this does, because before I even knew that this did the research and knew that this was based on a book, I thought it was based on a play. There's like it's a lot of dialogue, a lot of monologues, and there's only like sparse locations throughout the whole thing. Yeah, it could be set on stage easily because then the the main focus of the film is they eventually have to build this wall. Like I said, it's a straight wall. They're not yeah making it fancy, so you could have that cutting by bisecting the stage. You could have it as a, a metaphor for what's going on in their lives together, or. That's against exactly. the people holding them, that sort of thing. You know, I could definitely see it as a, a set design play. But to get into where the wall came from, mm. we have to begin at the beginning, as they say. So you got Mandy Patinkin driving down the road in his in his little red BMW, and he comes across wandering out of the woods aimlessly, a bloodied oh. James Spader. He just picks him like, up. Looking like a catatonic Frank Zappa. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Then the mu- the movie just takes off from there like like a rocket. James Spader is doing maybe the worst Ratso Rizzo impression I've heard in a while. But then he just gets into the car. You know, Mandy Patinkin just lets him get into the car, and it's like I'm heading to New York. He's like, that's fine. And then Spader unleashes this like three minute monologue about how he got <laughs> there and like the nature of chance what am i watching all of a sudden yeah and not cutting away from him or getting mandy's reaction no it's interjections it's just a one shot with mandy in the foreground and i'm like but that's what leads me to believe that it could be a great play because Mm -hmm. it's just like all these artsy monologues you know eventually they get to new york and then they're going to separate for a second but the whole time he's trying to convince mandy this was my first major problem with the movie is that leap of uh, character inconsistency where you're just like yeah, I'm just gonna trust this guy that came out of the woods. Yeah, the dude in blood, saying that he's going to a poker game at somebody's house that I've never met. I've never met this guy before, and he seems outwardly shady the whole time he's talking. You never go to a second location. That's the you never go to a second story. location. You know, it's funny. Like part, part of the more back... persuasive somehow. Yeah. yeah, part of the backstory when like uh, before he got like found in the woods was like he, he apparently like the last game he was at was like they uh they got robbed. Mm-hmm. And like the whole time, like uh, for the first like thirty minutes of the movie, I thought like Mandy Patinkin was the guy that just that robbed Robin was like kind of felt bad and was like, yeah, no, I'll you win your money back. That's, That's a more what I thought at first. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's got all these little. Don't write a better movie, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, but like that's the the beauty of the ambiguity is like you don't know these people may have had a past. You don't know if he actually knows someone or if he is the guy. 
Yeah, I and, my guess was the place they were going was James Spader was going to seek revenge on the people that had robbed them at the first location that he was at. Yeah, so no, I thought I thought he knew these were the money rollers and stuff. But he does he does mention I forget how how he how it comes to be that he's playing with these guys. I don't know if it was like in relation to that game or just a way to make his money back. I think he heard they were dupes. Maybe at that last game, or just there's that all along his travels. I think this goes along with what Tristan's saying. Like, there's a fine line between the ambiguity and being deliberately elliptical to the point mm. of kind of being frustrating because you got story lapses, which yeah. I think is what this is. Like, the storytelling isn't as fluid as it should be or lucid. So it's actually stuff like that where you're just like, I'm not quite sure the connection here. It's actually why I like the second half. Once they're actually building the wall. It's just the two guys, really. So, right. It it feels better to develop their characters there. You don't you you get an idea of these two guys that are going to dupe them, eventually. That yeah. you think are dupes. Um, they're basically supposed to be pushovers in in poker, but once the two go there, the plan that Spader thinks he's or Jack thinks he's hatching does not go even close to as well as he expected. Uh, there's a little weirdness in there because um, Jim wanders away from the poker game because he's not part of it. And Jack thinks that that was his good luck charm because he's doing well. Well, Jim is there. But as soon as it goes south, it never goes north again. And that's how they get stuck. They owe a lot of money to these people and then are told that they need to build a wall. Yeah, no, the poker game was run by uh joel gray and charles durning as willie stone and bill flower did you see their but, names i didn't realize their last names until they, they well they stone have, and flower yeah well they have yeah well they taught they mentioned the names and also there's there's a sheet of stationery when the contract comes out that mm -hmm. has the thing at the top flower and they're just and stone, two yeah. two business partners who uh won the lottery and so, like, that's why they're rich. And so they're talking about suddenly becoming insanely wealthy and what they could do with all of that. And there's all this exposition where they're just like, oh, we bought a castle over in Europe, but we didn't keep it over there. We, like, had it taken apart brick by brick to bring over here just because we could. And they you don't want to rebuild that castle. They just they, want a wall. Yeah, they're like, we're going to build a wall. It's just a monument to building a wall, basically. Like, it's such... A ridiculously over-the-top wealthy thing to do just yeah. because you can yeah the hubris of rich people i mean they go into a weird quirky um <laughs> charlie kaufman-esque detour when they uh joel gray shows the diorama that's oh, the weird yeah. like like about. In new york yeah he's got like a serial killer train set in his, <laughs> yeah. in his he's room like, in this his is house, just this moment including many this flashpoint in my life this is me and my wife but what happened everybody and and mm, kill the wires for the insurance money. Who knows? Um, and and like uh, how like it shows how like delusional or like weird like God, just, his psyche, uh, how off it is. Is like when in his like little diorama, he's got a little section in the corner where there's like his ideal society, uh, just in in there and in the prison that he has in this like little town that he's built. Uh, like all the prison guards are happy and they're. Uh, delighted to uh, serve their penance to society and then just like you know at the tail end of like showing that part of the uh, thing there's like there's a there's a firing squad 
just like and maybe a little foreshadowing just in case. who knows just in case the the thing though is once that set comes out then i started thinking i'm like okay is this sort of like a a I always think there's some sort of supernatural element hidden. Like these guys oh, yeah. are really just like they literally made a deal with the devil and now mm-hmm. they're like controlling fate as closely as they can with this little dollhouse that he made. I mean, because there is a as, little bit of that. As the uh, events continue, and they they force these guys to build the wall to pay back their gambling debt. Like that's the right. whole thing. That's why they end out up out in the field. But as they're building the wall, you see shots of him building the teeny tiny wall where they're building the wall with each individual brick on this this model and it's like because they have a model of their own property within this utopian diorama he's built it gets very meta for a bit yeah um and i'm like are they just controlling everything and it's funny you bring up the devil part uh apparently they do also explain that more in the book it's not just a castle that they're sort of recreating that's not just a random wall in the novel it's supposed to recreate the wailing wall from jerusalem which makes a little more sense why they'd want to do something they want to like have their own version of something rather than just nothingness but i think for this like you said earlier Corey, uh they sort of want to do their own thing within this film to maybe separate it from the novel even though paul oster the novelist helped work on this so I don't know if he wanted to do something to separate it or... Sounds like a lot of the nuance was lost in the translation. That's what I'm thinking. But how do you do that when you're the author itself is part of the screenwriter team? You know? Well, it might be a little bit like, you know, if they wanted Mandy Patinkin to be more of a strong, silent type, they're going to tell him what the backstory is so that he can use that in his performance rather than, you know, it's like how, how in the Harry Potter movies, when Alan Rickman knew ah. Snape's, Snape's ultimate uh, yeah, that's, before anyone else did. That's and true. So, that's true. But then at the same time, the movie's not shy with dialogue. So you could <laughs> flip that in no. there. Uh, it's actually very profuse with dialogue to the point where it might be a little overwritten. Yeah. But, I, I mean you only have two main characters you got to fill in that uh space it's clear that mm-hmm. they wanted some sort of mystery to the wall to those guys uh they don't show up again in the novel either like they don't in the film uh other than you see his hand moving on the diorama yeah but we should we should mention who um who appears mostly in the second half but he's briefly in the first half which is um Oh please, uh, Kelvin Merckx, played by M. Emmett Walsh. M. Emmett Walsh. He's like the land. He's like the ground. I had it in the U.S. Security guards. I, I was about to say E.G. Marshall, but I know that one. Slash yeah. Gopher, and he's like the voice of the other two for the remainder yeah. of the film. Because once they get sent out to the field, like you never see flower or stone oh, again flower or stone again see again it's ambiguous it's inconclusive this, i know you like that part of it and this is but, but no here's here's where some crazy theories come up what if calvin was behind the whole thing what if they never existed what mm-hmm. if they're all in his mind but it's actually just, right or they were just like other gamblers that calvin had tricked and he's just like playing playing the role of the 
Well, honestly, I don't know, but the boss has said so. That sounds better than oh, what yeah. actually. If happened. they had revealed that, I would have liked that better. Yeah, yeah. I want a li- I needed a little bit of something at the end of this. Yeah, I needed a little bit of a wrap up. Mm-hmm. No, it was it was very like just kind of ambles along. And I'm just like, oh, okay. It kind of ambles oh, along, wow. much like uh, James Spader on the road, or Mandy at the end. Mandy, well, yeah. Um, Maybe he was faking. Maybe he didn't really die. Now, the other thing is the uh, as part of their indentured servitude, you know, they have an agreement that they can order supplies and entertainment and food and all that stuff. Entertainment. You have to survive. And then at one point, a hitch they, they, they invite or, or ask for the, the, the company of uh, a lady. A lady. An Atlantic City whore. Lady! <laughs> um, named Tiffany, played by Samantha Mathis. So and... this is her second movie in 93. Right. Princess Daisy returns. <laughs> yeah. And then they have like, you know, they have a party or whatever, and then it's just for that for that scene, it was actually kind of like because Spader's talking about how not the real reason that they're there, but just grifting as usual. Talking about how like they're millionaires who are just like running this this contractor project for these other millionaires. This is my favorite scene for a couple of reasons. Not just Samantha Math that Samantha Mathis is in it, but like you just said, James Spader is able to show his acting chops. It's why he was a good gambler. Right. And then you also learn that Mandy Patinkin can play the piano and doesn't want to have sex with her. So he's trying to be faithful, sort of, to his ex-wife. And it just builds character. And Jimmy was saying to me as we uh progressed through the film, he's like, I like that we're getting tidbits of Mandy's character's life. So that might be the best part of the film. You don't really need yeah. or get anything from Jack. Yeah. But Jim, Jim is the focus. You're obviously yeah. interested. There's a bit a bit of a little a little uh uh like uh dark undertones that I got from it, uh from that scene and like uh throughout the movie because uh part of the thing is like uh um uh, Mandy Patinkin's character, uh he Jim. his daughter, he's like he's regularly writing her and apparently he's getting letters back from her but every time i see that i was like i wonder if like the uh the, the old like old man that's basically their guard dog is like just faking those letters and just like oh here's some false hope there you go oh this will be funny how yeah. about she puts kisses and glitter or, or like <laughs> you, you even find out like he's got a grandson later on in the movie like maybe he has his grandson uh like write the letters for he's them a spy because you're like, who's how? Like, it would be more authentic if you have a kid write a letter. Mm-hmm. I feel it's like we're filling in gaps that are, that just. Well, aren't no, that's the yeah. we're filling in the the little mortars in between the, the mortar in between the bricks. God damn it! But this is another another theory I had at this point. This might just be because we're watching this in in 2023. But I, in that one scene, I caught a possible character thing that. Mandy was gay and was partially like he had grown attached to Jack for a bit through that, but was just being he didn't say anything about it, whatever. Because when he doesn't um, have sex with, with Tiffany, 
It was just one of those. He's like, no, I'm I'm good for the night. And it was just like he was just being nice, but it could be read as, you know, no, you two have fun. I'm gonna go sulk in the other room for a bit. Mm-hmm. I can see that, especially when he uh, acts so viscerally to a man <clears throat> he just met dying, possibly. Right. And he literally, when he takes the cake out, he's like singing mm-hmm. operatically. And oh, singing, not playing piano. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he probably still do that, but. Yeah, I just assume because trail. I know Mandy Patinkin can actually play. Ah, uh, you you oh, you jumbled your memory circuits. It's just and silly robot. You just adding these little character things because it wasn't there. Like it's and that's I don't know. I like I like yeah. the there, but yeah, and you only ever see him pull out one picture of presumably him and his ex-wife. It's like a bookmark in a in a book that he's reading. Which, Which, by the way, is a Paul Auster novel. Right. One of the two bits of trivia on the IMDb page. Mm-hmm. How self-indulgent. I could tell from when he was sitting on the porch. I was like, I bet that's I bet that's a fucking novel by the guy making this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's something I would do, so. But then the film takes a dark turn. <sighs> At that point, sure. Well, yeah. no, dark <laughs> well yeah. dark, darker turn. Yeah. Well, no, because Jack gets gets, you know, just has enough, and they start digging a hole at the fence at the edge of the property. Well, why does he have enough? Because they get that new contract. Oh, right, that's right. And it's, they, it's... they paid off. They well, it was not a new contract. It's a bill. They tacked on the fees yeah. that they were using for yeah. what they thought were gratuities. Yeah. So when they set up the situation. Uh, Jim had had planned out that okay, this is how much we're gonna make per hour because this is we're gonna be legitimate about this. So we're gonna do all these, and then they said you're gonna have this place to stay. You're gonna get food. You're gonna get clothing if you need it. It's it supplies <coughs> to dig and build the wall. So they understood. Well, if you're doing that, why would we have to pay for it? So then when they get that, it's like, okay, well you finish something in life and something else shits on you. You know, it's it's the metaphor for like you'll never get ahead because there's always something around the corner. You know, yeah. And so I don't know if the the asshole billionaires are teaching them a lesson or just being dicks for the sake of being dicks, or it well, is legitimately how billionaires think. <laughs> they did drunkenly wander up to the mansion and throw a rock through their window. Mm-hmm. So that might have been just a petty. Like, fine, you're going to do that? We're going to charge you for all this. Because the mm-hmm. broken window was included in the... I think that's the case, expenses. actually. I think they weren't going to do that until the window breaks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that also was... is sort of like what happens, say, Shawshank Redemption. There's always like, you try to get out of jail, and you're always pushed back because of bad behavior. But you did circumstances. Yeah, like, like, there's always something that you're like, well, I was good, except for this one moment <laughs> in 20 years. Well... Here's another five years, you know, something like that. Yeah. And they, they, they kept adding to the sense, like technically they served their 50 days and then it was like, no, we're just going to keep you here. Um, Cause you need to finish building this wall. Basically the unfairness of life. Right. And so yeah. Jack tries to escape. And as usual, Jim is just like, no, you go on without me. I'll see you in a couple months. I got to be a man of honor and finish this job. It's romantic. And 
Jack. I'm like, all right, fuck off. And then he just like <laughs> he literally like, just walks off. His, you won't remember me at all. And then he leaves. Yeah, uh, goodbye. And then a pickup truck drives by with a little kid waving in the back. Seemingly innocuous, right? Um, so then Jim goes back to building the wall by himself as the rest of the day wakes up the next day and he sees Jack lying broken, beaten, left for dead in the middle of the field. How he got there, you don't know. It's kind of perfect. Obviously, obviously he was caught and dragged back. Um, presumably, I think it was suicide personally. This is why it feels kind of supernatural, actually. Like, I could see you're bent on that because he's so perfectly laid out. And it reminded me of Lost or even this the recent film Old when they try to get off the beach that makes you old. They're just sent back into the middle of the beach. Yeah. It's it's sort of like that Lost. You can't escape because there might be a force field keeping a magnetic field keeping everyone on the island. So it's almost as if are there 20 people that can guard them and there's really just one that we see played by M. Emmett Walsh? Or is it that it's just how life is where you try to escape your your confines and you're never going to rise up in your class, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's one of those things where, you know, on some level, I think he just fucked up and got caught. Yeah. And they were, they, they did not want him to leave. And so... They splayed him out. Um, he was technically still alive at that point, though. And then they say that they're going to take him to a hospital. So they take him to the hospital. Well, Chris Penn shows up as uh, yeah. Willie's grandson. Yes. Um, so they throw him in the Jeep, shuttle him off to the hospital. And then a couple days later, they tell him that he uh, magically got better and walked out of the hospital. Perfect. Mm. Nah, Perfect. he's dead. Yeah. Right. So maybe he's dead. It gets I mean, way... honestly, knowing his character, he could have. And that's the thing. That's it's ambiguity. You're you're led to believe that. Well, he he could like he's done that in the past. But, he picked them up you know, like yeah but like but the way the way that the old man just shrieked around the uh answer when like mandy patankin like pressed him on was like no because like he has a certain way about him when uh uh he wants to deflect mm-hmm. from uh whenever the uh, uh the other two like mandy patankin and uh james spader's like try to like press him on anything so like he always has like something to just uh change the conversation not answer or just be polite about it and uh whatever so like uh yeah that's why the ambiguity is like i don't know like the ambiguity doesn't seem so uh doesn't seem to be there for me when i saw that scene that's why Um, i think mm walsh is uh the mvp of this movie because he has the best range that he has to portray like trying to lie to jim about jack's death uh you you can pick up on his quirks you know i think that's the best part about it yeah and then like when you uh realize that like he's not all that of a nice old guy uh 
despite how often like he tries to be polite uh especially when he shows up uh after getting decked in the face with a gun on his hip who's like yeah mm-hmm. no i'm not taking any more uh precautions it's like oh he's, so we're... he's this the thing is a lethal situation he's the definition of malicious compliance mm-hmm go um anyway jack ends up coming to a head himself and and can't accept that he'll be stuck in this jail anymore he's finished the wall he doesn't want to stay what else can he do and they say that he's accomplished everything so you can leave but let's go out for a drink and so of course you think is this going to be on my bill is this a way to trap me here again that's what i was thinking he brought that up though yeah yeah he's i can't afford to go drinking right he's like i'm I'm good. I appreciate the offer, but no. Right. You can't have good faith anymore with these people. Yeah. So they still go because what else is he gonna do? Yeah. Well, well the old man said for... he'll he'll uh he'll he'll put it on his tab so that yeah, way open. there won't be any debt on uh Mandy Patankin's character. Which also leads you to leads you to believe that uh does he owe the billionaire something and he actually wasn't just hired to be a groundskeeper? Has he been there for a longer time? True. These are all great questions that never get answered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which Corey, is fine. Corey loved this movie. You know, it doesn't this shaggy dog story. You don't need to answer every single question. None this of them were answered, Jeff. Come on. This is this is not none of these questions were answered. That's fine. The movie ends on a whimper. Why don't you tell them how it ends? But it wraps up in a nice little it didn't though. Twist mm. of metal. You that so. Eh. So this is how the novel ends. Jack. It's not resolved. They're not Jack. Jim manages to talk himself into because he was he's playing tip, in, in in classic gambler That's fashion. Classic he Jim gambles. Fashion. Classic Jim move. He, you know, makes Oh uh, yeah, on, I do it all the time on a pool game with. Uh, with Kelvin's son-in-law at the bar, the late queen. and he like tries to, and then he wins, and the son tries to tries to pay him, and he's like, no, 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 I'm I'm good. He's like, well, I, I owe you one, just I owe you a favor, just anytime you need something, just ask. And he's like, well, well funny you should say that. I need a ride, and he's like, let me let me drive my car back. Oh, that was the other thing. We established they lost yeah. his. Car. Yeah, yeah, he, he lost his car in that. the poker game. In that the was a last-ditch thing in the actual poker game where yeah. uh, Durning and Gray take Spader. Uh, at the last minute, Mandy's like, take my car. And they're like, you'll have no or, well, way he... to leave. Oh, well, this is not take yeah. his car, but like he's yeah. he's leveraging his car as his last yeah. bit of a, his last gambit, essentially. That's the right way to say it. Um, <laughs> by the way, that was the car my mom had in the 90s. Oh, wow. How'd she like, get? Red, and, yeah, you never know. Maybe she won <laughs> in a poker game when I was six. Uh-oh. That's not that's not the car. I didn't have the set the car from no. Music of Chance, but uh, it drove like it. I'm sure. Yeah. The, uh, seat, the seat broke for the passenger at one point. I'm suspicious of joy now. Well, it's funny yeah. that you should mention that because uh, after he manages to get in the driver's seat, you see him slowly increasing his speed. Oh, they're, they're going down those those dark country roads until he like is going 100 miles an hour and just sort of like veers off 
into the woods. Everything final and twisted metal. Calvin and his son-in-law are presumably. No, they're dead. They're very much dead. <laughs> yeah. I Wikipedia said lungs. I heard their lungs gurgle blood as uh, through their last breath. It was a. It was no, a, a, a catastrophic implosion. Yeah. Anyway, so they are presumably dead. Bandy's is walking in a similar fashion to how he found. Uh, how he found Jack at the beginning of the movie. It's poetry. Yeah. Rhymes. Poetry emotion. It's full circle. And then he gets picked up on the road by none other than Paul Oster himself. Oh, is, that, is that really the author? That's the it author, is. yeah. It's uh, the author. Which is also the most self-indulgent thing you can do. He's like, I'm going to New York. that okay? He's like, I'm actually going to Minnesota, but sure, whatever. <laughs> Have you ever played poker? And then they drive off well, into the distance. Well, the thing but is, he like, he, he said, he says, like, when they get to New York, he's got to make a phone call. So it's oh, yeah, he's, he's going to call. Is he? He's either going to call his daughter or he's calling the police. Been. He's like, can you give he's me? Call the daughter. He's calling his daughter. He don't care. Sister. It's his sister. It's not his daughter. It's his sister. Well, his sister that really matters too much. But his sister has his daughter. Yeah, his sister has his daughter. So you can say, so he has to call his sister to talk to his daughter. Okay. Okay. So in the novel, they uh, make it so that his wife left him and took the daughter to Chicago where his sister is. And he had an abusive relationship with his father. So she understands why he was getting angry as a firefighter in Boston. And so his anger issues were getting the better of him. And he has come to the conclusion that he needs to drift to clear his mind. And he thinks that he'll eventually show up where his sister is and rekindle with his ex-wife but you don't know that that's going to happen or not so that's what's extra in the novel okay and that also that also comes to why he put ninety thousand miles on a brand new car right because he has to think for a while to make sure that he's good again for his family because they're they're both unreliable narrators in that like their story keeps changing even with each other Mm -hmm. which i like but yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. There's good parts of this, but sure. Overall, it was it was an adventure. 65 million years in the oh wait, no. Uh oh. Yeah. Well, no, life found a way. Yes, life life uh found a way. Oh god, Jeff Goldblum was the Gam- gambling debt uh found a way. Hey, uh, Hammond, how did you build this park? Uh, we had two guys build all the walls. Oh, my oh, yeah. God. Wait a minute. Because <laughs> one of the one of the old guys looks like... How did you survive that be... car wreck? Chaos theory. Chaos, Chaos theory. theory. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's uh, what, What's this thing called? Uh, Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I want to talk about Charles Durning for a second. Um, yes. I don't know if you guys knew about him serving in World War II. I knew about that. I did not. Yeah, I wrote a couple of facts in our notes, but I just wanted to bring up how cool he was because he apparently was one of, in one of the first waves to land on Omaha Beach for D-Day. Oh, wow. He also participated in the Battle of Bulge. He has had a silver star, a bronze star, and three purple hearts, and then decided to become an actor when he came back to the States and was like, yeah, I'll, give, I'll try this out. And then just was in Shakespeare shows for like a decade before he was ever in any film. Right. He's just, he's just a cool... American. Wow. 
he apparently uh, he's, he's buried at Arlington, one of the few actors to get that. So, just well, he's friends with Burt Reynolds, and I heard uh, Burt's dad served in uh, almost the same platoon as him. Oh yeah, yeah. So they uh, they commiserate over that. that was That's cool. Yeah, I just everything I've seen about him in like all his other films, you're like he's just this fun loving guy, and you're like he served in the heart of World War Two. <laughs> Yeah, so, he really saw it. Um, and Joel Gray is still with us. He just turned ninety-one. He was in the Old Man, the TV show with uh, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, so he's still acting, was... and he just he just won a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Tonys. Uh, he's he he's one of the biggest Broadway actors ever. So the two of them are just cool. Father yeah. of Jennifer Gray. Yep. Yep. So yeah, it's. Shame we didn't see enough of them. In I know. I wanted more of both of them. Yeah. But I like all four actors. I think, and and M. Emmett Walsh. I like all five actors. Yeah. Um, this is probably the best that uh, Walsh has had to feast on in a role. Like I said, you don't think Blood Simple? I am uh, not as excited as people are in that. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely. He was the originator, uh, or at least the first person to get nominated or win to win for the uh indie spirits for best actor actually for blood simple so so all these guys have some claim to fame like a, a neat a neat little thing but anyway how do we uh how do we grade the film i'd give it a c plus yeah would we would we continue their service or would we uh dump them I'd probably, probably give it a C. I think Mandy Batangan's good. I think uh, James Spader's cartoonish to a distracting degree. And what might seem like virtues to me just felt like they were kind of gutting the source material and not leaving and leaving the kind of bare bones. And the, the dialogue's just purple prose. At a certain point, people are just talking for the sake of pontificating which really was not like so yeah i was a huge fan of this mm -hmm. i'd probably give it a c as well if i had the choice to see this or jurassic park what do you think i'd do jurassic park i mean a six for well, sure when you're nine. at 36 also for sure a minus oh god i knew it contrarian <laughs> <laughs> this is a very Jeff film. It it well, it's very it, play. It's stage bound, so Jeff right. Yeah. See, that's that's when I saw it because I kept seeing the potential of like if you're just imagining that this is someone took a stage play and put it outside. Um, I I don't know. It it was. I don't like the the um flower and stone kind of disappear. And then you never hear from them again. But that was really my only qualm with it, because everything else is like it it's it's pretty straightforward for the most part, but leaves enough room for interpretation. Yeah. Um, I I would feel I feel like it would be worse if they just sort of like explained everything away. Yes. Well, I don't yeah. know they explain, but I feel like the audience really has to do a lot of heavy lifting. They they, they tie well, not really, because they tied up a lot of a lot of things. Like, because the little kid that I talked about with the 
that was waving ends up being Calvin's grandson. And you're like, oh, so he saw them. So that ties that whole end together. So he's not just mysteriously dropped in the middle of the field. It's like. It probably was Calvin. Right. And you, you have realize... to assume things. So Corey's just saying that's a bad thing. Yeah. And you're saying it's a good thing. Well, certain I think, things. I think it there's can... a level. It worked for this. Mm -hmm. It was almost as if it was by chance. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> I think there's a good Creative aspect monster. of amb ambiguity, but it's to a regular audience. This is too smart. Right. Uh, and and that's, is, that's what I'm thinking about. I, it's not I liked for everyone. it fine, but I just was thinking, like, is this a hidden gem? And not for like our audience, not for most audiences, but because we like stuff like this sometimes, I think if it catches like it did for you, Jeff, I think it works. Yeah. And it almost did for me, but I, I sort of agree more with Corey. Not yeah. like I need everything explained, but I wanted it to be paced better. That's the thing I yeah. didn't like about it. Like, sure. okay, yeah. I get what's going to happen. This is all going to be a metaphor for uh, rich versus poor. It and did meander. So, but it's it's not a popcorn flick, but it's something like I do. <laughs> I do think it qualifies as a hidden gem because it's, you know, I didn't know this existed and I actually liked it. But sure, yeah, um, then it worked. Yeah, yeah there you go. But again, I agree that it's not for everyone. Um, beatnik James Spader, unrecognizable in his current form. And I actually him. liked him a lot, and yeah. unlike Corey, I thought he worked. But in the well, context of this film. But the thing is, if he's playing a, a grifter and a professional gambler, like he's gonna be that type of character and like misleading and, and obnoxious to sort of like dissuade. So it fit the way that he was doing it. Performance-wise, it might have made it a little weird, but I think it worked in character. Um, whereas you know, Mandy Patinkin was the strong silent type who you're never like because there are two types of poker players. There's the guy that bluffs by like making a big show of everything. And there's the guy that has an absolute stoic poker face. And you're yeah. never quite sure what he's thinking. Right. I'll tell you maybe I went into this. That's the dynamic that I saw. Mm -hmm. Halfway through the movie, I thought, is this going to be like a precursor to rounders? And then it went off in a different direction. So maybe it's my for having different expectations of where I thought the trajectory of the story was going to go. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because like you're saying, Jeff, I thought like uh, I was like, oh, okay, so I could see where the Matt Damon and Edward Norton characters maybe evolve from these two. Because mm -hmm. obviously Manny Patang is more sensible than Matt Damon one. Mm -hmm. And James Spader is the Weasley Edward Norton one. Yeah. Yeah, I actually thought instead of them being forced to build a wall, I thought they would keep trying to play poker games. And so then at some point, Mandy would play poker, you know, like, and then he's better at it. And and you always thought James Spader would be the one that would win because he's the one coming in saying he could. Yeah, right. That's what a weasel does. So, yeah. I mean, uh, from, from the first 30 minutes, I was expecting a heist movie. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I will give it that. It never reveals what it's going to do so it's not predictable i will give it if you're into that then the unpredictability is one of yeah. his strongest suits i i uh i kind of was hoping it was like uh would have been a little more psychologically thrilling uh mm. 
especially when it got to the bit where like the the tensest part that I felt like uh would have been like a they could have leaned in a little bit more a couple times throughout the movie, but they didn't. Was like when uh, James Spader's character was like like superstitious about like the uh, uh one of the uh little uh figurines that uh Mandy Patinkin stole from the uh, uh panorama, and it was mm -hmm. like uh the the figurines of the uh two billionaires when they got their lottery tickets, like because that was just displayed in there because they wanted mm -hmm. to uh, commemorate it uh he's a immortalize it uh so like uh mandy patek is like you, you you think this thing has is like has real like uh power over us like or like as if it was like magic like because like uh because james spader's a it's gambler a he, he believes in luck so like uh he he thought it was unlucky or just bad luck or just whatever superstitious the thing that was going on through his head about taking it and then like uh mandy patek is like no 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 this is this is this isn't a thing so he just throws it in a fire and then like you know things get worse mm-hmm like a voodoo doll yeah like a voodoo doll so like it would have been cool if like little more moments like that happened and it started getting at uh at one of them more than the other and like would have built more tension uh and like maybe they would have had a fight with each other a couple more times mm-hmm and then like no. made up and then so that you're saying made we didn't spend enough time so much them. worse yeah a little yeah. more they they never well here's the thing after he, he burns the thing in effigy that's that's around the time that calvin's like well the bosses are leaving town mm -hmm. yeah and you never see them again after they like did they die little, like <laughs> maybe they were the two tokens in there calvin mm -hmm. was the mastermind that's my mm -hmm. thing mm-hmm but gotta anyway, break the yes. cycle. A minus. I loved it. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> Punctuate it. But that's not the end because there was other movies that came out this month, Jeff. Okay. Fine. Tell me. Is that a threat? Do enlighten us. I'm just letting you know. All right. Sydney right. <laughs> uh, uh, Lumet, who uh, is a great New York director, passed away a few years ago. Another courtroom drama. He's famous for uh, Go Angry Men, The Verdict, uh, Find Me Guilty. He did a... Um, yeah, that's what he's famous for. But Find Me Guilty, yeah. Okay. He, he gave it, yeah. Vin Diesel's great. best Vin Diesel film. Yeah. It is! It is, yeah, but no one knows about it. Okay, well, that's a hidden gem. Yeah. We're talking about hidden gems. Yeah. Um, speaking of hidden gems, Guilty of Sin came out, which... Um, was around the heyday of uh, Don Johnson post uh, Miami Miami Vice and right before uh, Nash Bridges, hmm. so, um, he plays like this sleazy this sleazy um, succubus. Well, incubus, I guess it wouldn't be. Yeah, incubus is a incubus is the male version who um, who marries for money, and he he fully admits to killing his wife. And uh, he's put on trial with um, Rebecca De Mornay as his um, attorney, and he starts playing psychological mind games with her. It's very, uh, it's it's a tart, acidic, um, erotic journey. I enjoyed it actually. It's a really good movie because the erotic this, part. This I'm kind of mad that we didn't pick this instead, but Jeff. Yeah, but Jeff would have hated it. Yeah. I don't 
Is it an erotic thriller? Actually, you know what? She's not stupid enough to go to bed with him, so... Okay. Even though she, he, he, like, intimates at that several times. So she's oh, actually... They give her enough yeah. agency where she's smart. What's that? That was, <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah. What did you say? I said, ah, it's a neurotic thriller. Neurotic. Yeah. Uh, I kid, I kid. That sounds good, though. I mean, I didn't know of this until now either, so it could have been our... Yeah, I just saw it this past month for the podcast. But... I think this worked out fine, especially because of the date it came out, you know? Yeah, I know Jimmy's kidding. And speaking of kids, Life of Mikey came out. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Nice nice little... Uh, that was a good segue, right? Step. Sure. That was a good yeah, segue. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is one of the, uh, the uh, bevy of Michael J. Fox vehicles that kind of drowned in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a, a lot of movies in the 90s. Just kind of forgotten. Yeah. And Doc Hollywood's on... One end of the spectrum, very underrated. This mm-hmm. one's on the other end of the spectrum. Kind of forgettable. Overrated? Eh, kind of in a way. Yeah. Because uh, I don't even think he has good chemistry with the girl, to be honest with you. So yeah, he plays sure. like a um, a former child star who becomes a talent agent for uh, child actors. And he finds this like, this kind of, um, this orphan ragamuffin that he, uh, he tries to uh, take under his counsel. You know, you know who's actually really good in the movie is Nathan Lane plays his brother. Hmm. And he's got the best stuff in the movie. But other than that, it's kind of one of those mediocre um, Disney live action movies that were coming out around that time, like Man in the House. That was Christina Vidal. Yeah, she done well. She's she done. I was trying to think of what she was in. She's a, one of Lindsay Lohan's friends in Freaky Friday. Wow, she's in The Guilty. She was one of the voices. Oh no, she's she's his boss. She's one of the actual physical people that interacts. Oh with wow, her. yeah. And then Man, she's a well, singer. Obviously I didn't recognize her. She became a singer more than anything else. She did the song for the Men in Black Two soundtrack. Uh, Black suits coming. Nod your head. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as much I as a troublemaker brothers. as she is, she's mm. nothing to Dance the Menace, which also came out this month. Ah. I'm the king of the segways right now. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So does, <laughs> does anybody uh, remember Dance the Menace, the film? Oh, oh yeah. Fact, I, I used to watch the hell out of that movie. My grandmother tried to get me to audition for it. Yeah? What? What? They were, you know, back in, or really, it never changed. They always would have those casting calls for, uh, like, national casting calls for kids. For kids' movies, because you always want to find a new talent or whatever. You so could have been believe, with Walter Matthau. I believe either Menlo Mall or Woodbridge Mall uh, was having like an open <laughs> casting call for Dennis the Menace. Kids wow! That. And uh, I know that the hmm. the kid that actually plays Dennis the Menace went to school with our friend Sean Mason Gamble. Yeah, Mason Gamble went to Rampo University. He's the oh. same age as you, Jimmy. What? So he's wow. a year younger than me. That's so nuts. So Sean knew him. But interesting in college. Apparently, he's happy with what he's doing. I think he did like business or something at Ramapo. Last thing I knew, he was in was Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just kind of done with acting. But he's I don't know what movie. he's doing since then. So like the last decade. But honestly, as a uh, as a four quadrant kids movie, it's not bad. And uh, yeah. just further example that um, uh, Christopher Lloyd is so good at playing villains. Oh, Actually, yeah. he's he's such a chameleon. He's good at playing any. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was my first introduction of him playing a villain. Mm-hmm. 
You saw that before Roger Rabbit? Uh, I didn't recognize him in Roger Rabbit, so it didn't register. That's actually one of the films I watch with my grandmother all the time. The one that tried yeah, to get me into Den- Dennis the yeah, Menace. Because so. I think the first thing that I saw him in that like I, I reckon was Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. So by the time I saw Dennis the Menace, like it's just like uh, I was like, oh, he's a bad guy. Yeah, Walter Matthau's great in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's perfect casting as that. He's great. Like, he, casting. he just looks like uh, the neighbor. Martha Plowright plays his wife. Is that okay? Yeah. I didn't know that. He's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah my mom, casting my in this is well no. Yeah, could have been, been me. This could have been the Dennis the Menace podcast. Yeah. This is your version of Bunny. Oh, then we, if, like we, if we did if this if we did a Dennis the Menace. Grandma Lillian saw my talent. Yeah. My mom said no. A what? She didn't want to become a child actor, mom. Did that keep oh. you up at night? No. Oh, so you weren't sleepless in Seattle, which also came out this month? Ah you. Look at me. I'm on fire. <laughs> um so it's basically like a soft remake of a fair to remember mm-hmm. where um they meet at the top of the uh, Empire State Building. It's a it's the second collaboration between Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Um, yes. of the of the three, my least favorite. Really? Yeah. Wow. Honestly, I like That's a hot take. Volcano the best. That's the one I haven't seen, but I I have a feeling I'll love it. So I kind of want to have, I want to end my Tom Hanks filmography because I'm actually kind of close. I got to see a lot of his early films, but that's the one I want to end on because I've heard how good it is from you. Yeah. And I think, well, more so for that movie, it's more of a Tom Hanks vehicle. In these other two movies, they get about equal billing. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got mail as a surprise. I like you. I didn't, I didn't mind it. I still think I haven't seen Shop Around the Corner, so it's yeah. not as good. Yeah. But um it's have weird you guys that... seen it? Sleepless in Seattle? Hmm? No, maybe which the kid is not I, I hate the kid in the movie. That might be why I don't oh. like the movie. Yeah, that makes sense. You hate kids, so I do. Mm. Jeff, have you seen Sleepless in Seattle? I have not. Oh boy. It's weird because this guys, was like I'm gonna have you over it. But in the nineties it seemed like Bill Pullman was getting typecast as the uh the meddlesome um cuck. The, yeah, the cuck. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the other love interest. Yeah. yeah. He's really funny in this. David Hyde Pierce is in it. Um Rosie oh, O'Donnell. Rosie O'Donnell's actually pretty good. Yeah, she's pretty good in it. Um, I love this film, but it's also really? one of my one of my parents' favorite films. So they would watch it anytime it was on TV. I've seen it dozens of times. It's on a lot. Yeah, my parents could quote it without even trying. So this is like the mm. cutting edge from last year. Those two were on rotation in my house as a kid. Yeah. So I kind of know it by heart. Um, In recent years, I've seen why maybe people wouldn't like it. Like you think it's the least of their three collaborations. You've got males almost like the same premise in a way. Only yeah. For interaction. And that's so- really why people didn't like it because it seemed like a rehash of Sleepless in Seattle. But if you th- really think about it, they literally don't meet until the end. Technically, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of a spoiler for YouTube, but that's the premise of the film. They're not. And you kind of figured that's where it's going, though, right? So. so it 
if you think about it, it's really about Tom Hanks and his son and Meg Ryan and her um, commitment phobia. And I think I like that more than ever their chemistry so yeah that actually that part of the plot line is more intriguing than the whole arc of those two getting together yeah i think i actually like meg ryan more than anything in this film huh so she no she's good in the, they have good chemistry obviously yeah but her her uh, character always questioning what's love got to do with it which mm-hmm. is the movie that came out and, hey, hey, hey. hey oh so we killed Tina Turner. We do this every month. We kill someone. Yeah. Yes. I mean, for the music of chance with two billionaires. So this is a biopic about Tina Turner. And um, I think uh, she got nominated and uh, Lawrence Fishburne got nominated as Ike. They Turner, did. Her uh, infamously abusive uh, ex-husband. Yeah. Um, and boy, do they not sugarcoat that. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. <laughs> He was definitely not a producer on this one. <laughs> um, Lawrence Fishburne's really good. It's, it's wrenching to watch most of the time. But mm-hmm. in, by the end, I don't feel like I got really any insight into Tina Turner as a person. I knew about mm-hmm. her as a performer, but not as a person, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. There was a documentary that came out a couple of years ago. I wonder that might that be would, better. It might be better, yeah. Though I, I hear this is really the film that uh, Angela Bassett was robbed for. So if she had won for Black Panther. It was almost like a consolation. I'm right. Sorry Ooh. about that. Yeah. So, although throughout all the decades, she's so sinewy. She's like so muscular. She's, she's so good in everything, honestly. Yeah. Even back in the Jurassic Age, she was good. Mm-hmm. Like the movie you started with, Jurassic Park. Hey. Hey. Ooh, full circle. Yep. I thought you were going to go to that from the last one because I said uh, her and chem- her chemistry with Tom Hanks. Speaking oh of yeah, yeah. So uh, obviously, it's a landmark film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also what's, two what's of our favorite scene? films. Yeah, it's Jimmy's favorite film. I, I just, yeah, it is. It's not even in my top ten Spielberg, but um, I like it. Mm-hmm. I like it, but I don't love it. Well, we'll talk more about this for Lost World. Yeah. Um. It's not even my, it's not my first movie in the franchise. Yeah. Wait, the first one isn't your favorite of the franchise? You like three better than one. I do. <laughs> I feel like the first one has this lofty idea that it's about more than just dinosaurs chasing people. And it's yes. Not. I mean, yeah. That's why it's elevated it's from not, even the book. By the end, it's not. It abandons all that just so that kids can be in peril. It's about, Which is good. It's I mean, about... A man reconciling with his desire to have a family. Because yeah, his work takes him from having a normal life. That's but, he sub- but he substitutes the family with dinosaurs for the most part. Oh, yeah. Over your head. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, can I buckle a seatbelt? You know how, like, Jeff or was, saying, like, was talking about how he likes ambiguity? Yeah. Where from the very beginning, do they just show you how much Sam Neill fucking hates kids? <laughs> <Yes>. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that actually. <laughs> I mean, it is a funny scene, but it's like it, there's no subtlety to this at all. Mm-hmm. But Do obviously... you know some of the casting that could have been in this for some of these actors, Jim Cameron, sure when he was going to make about this, when when 
was uh, possibly going to make it. There was a bidding war really on top of each other, and Spielberg actually had to use some subterfuge to make sure it went to Universal. But James Cameron tried to get it at the same time, and he would have had Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Grant. What? Uh-huh. Oh, I want to see him punching dinosaurs now. Right? <laughs> Damn it. So this could have been he, he would have said, quick, get in the chopper at the end. So, you yeah. know what's interesting is that because you know Spielberg has a light touch, based on the novel, from what you I've gathered from what you told me about the novel, he's mm-hmm. definitely changed and recontextualized some of the characters and softened a lot of them, like Hammond, for instance. Yeah, I mean, it comes off in the novel that he's kind of like a, a little bit of a dictator uh, that wants to control everything, and he's just mean to people. He doesn't want his grandkids there. And so originally there were, I think even he was the one that wanted Clint Eastwood. I don't know if that was also Jim Cameron or Spielberg, but I think it was Spielberg. You can't cast uh, that girl not make so, it funkular. Yeah, he would have been real grumpy, you know? And so he could have done that. There was a version, maybe this is the camera one. Charlton Heston was slated to possibly play him. And so that would have been like the really gruff, really mean, mm. like, I don't give a shit about people. I just want money kind of guy. He could have done that. Yeah. Um, but then Spielberg took the now retired director, Richard Attenborough, and plugged him in as like basically Santa Claus, which he plays the next year. Yes. So I think it works in hindsight very well, but I'm sure as they were making it, they're like, he's supposed to die. He's supposed to get his comeuppance. And now you've made him like Walt Disney. I think, yeah, you know, it's, it's almost a case where the casting almost made that impossible. Like the audiences would have revolted if they had killed him off. Mm-hmm. Because he's so, as you say, warm and sanguine. Yeah. Almost like when they put um, John Glover in Gremlins 2 and you're like, I think he's supposed to be the villain, but I like him too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of thing can't happen. I mean, the linchpin of this film isn't in the novel either. It's when he's eating all the ice cream because it's going to melt. And that's just kind of the thing he's thinking about because he doesn't want to think about the death around him. And Ellie Sattler is like, you got to think about the death around you. This is what you've done to yourself. So that, I think, is the kind of thing that he elevates above the novel. There's never a conversation like that. That's his real comeuppance. You have to live with the, the blood on your hands. So... It's so just not good that they're, they're really comparable, yeah. but do you prefer the novel or the film? <clears throat> well, I saw yeah, the film I guess first. I know the answer. I saw the film first, so technically I, I think I'd say the film, but the novel just... This is what I always think. Whatever you do first is going to be the thing you like more, but I, I think I like watching the movie first because then the novel can expand upon it. I read The Hunger Games after seeing the movies. I read two of the Lord of the Rings novels after seeing the movies. And I liked them better because they could give you more detail about characters that didn't get a lot of screen time, you know, like the side characters. So you get more characterization for Malcolm. You get some characters that aren't even in it. And then you're like, oh, well, that's both Gennaro and Ed Regis are just Gennaro's stuff. Like Ed Regis dies in the same way that Gennaro does. And Gennaro moves on and does some stuff that Muldoon does. And so you can see what's changed, but you're like, oh, that's kind of fun. And you're in a reverse way learning how they adapted it. And if it's adapted well, then you can appreciate both. So I think the Hunger Games did that as well, which is why I brought that up. Yeah. Um, you know, it. I read Silver Linings Playbook, and I think they changed that enough that it feels like two different things. So you can appreciate both. But I know a lot of people that will have read the novel, and they're like, well, they didn't do it the way I saw it. Sure. <laughs> so I think I love both. And I've read the novel um, five times. And I've liked it every time as much as I've seen Jurassic Park 
also dozens of times. So I, I just like the story in general. Funnily enough, uh, just personally, uh, when I went to go see it in the theater, I remember uh, the first scene. You don't even see the because he's doing it. He kind of does the Jaws rule mm-hmm. again, where mm-hmm. you don't really see it in its full glory until by you probably know the time mark. Um, Actually, I don't. I was going to say, I have a new timestamp. But uh, you just hear it roaring. And I remember, apparently, and I remember this when my mom recalls it all the time. I was so scared. I ran and hid and ducked in the aisle. Wait, what, what part did you freak out on? Just the just them lowering the T Rex into the, uh, the Velociraptor. A, a, oh, sorry, sorry. The Velociraptor. Yeah, you hear the T Rex oh, when the branches are waving, but then the, the, see, the part, the part, the when I was a kid, I saw it in theaters. The part I freaked out on was uh, when the Velociraptor popped out behind Ellie. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. That's where I lost it. <laughs> I used to be scared that they had re released Snow White in theaters, like they were doing with a bunch of Disney films. And I was, oh, I would run from the room whenever the Wicked Witch would like tackle from her balcony as she turns into the Wicked Witch. And my parents were like, We're not taking you to Jurassic Park. You're freaked out by like the witch from Snow White. <laughs> I was like, Yeah, but dinosaurs aren't real. I can understand that. And they're like, Okay, he's smart enough at this point. He's, he's good. <laughs> That's so, funny. Yeah. What about you, Jeff? What's your, what's your memory of Jurassic Park? I'm trying to think because I don't think I saw it until a couple of years later. He's the youngest of us. He just turned five. Right. Honestly, I don't think I saw Jurassic Park until I was in high school. Wow. The first time. How are we friends? I think it might have been with you. (laughs) This is why we do Poster Boy. Right. I feel like, no, I honestly, I I feel like it might have been like, you know, we might have just been at Tristan's one day and this whole conversation came up again. And you're like, wait, I'm getting it right now. I feel it's like, like I dude, I've seen Carnosaur. Well, I don't need to see <laughs> right. Um No, I just I remember really liking the music. And you know, not quite grasping the the, the full hilt of the hubris involved. Mm. Um I also, and this is this is, I'm gonna get some flack for this. I have trouble getting through a lot of Spielberg movies just because they're so long. It's not. It's not. I don't think it's a hot take. I need to do. I need to do. You know, it's not good with endings. I'll tell you that. I need to do like what Tristan does, where it's just like you gotta you gotta break it up into sections. Chapters. Yeah, I don't like doing that. No, I know. It's perfect for this movie because it's based on a book. Right. I never read, well, that was the other thing. I never read the book. Serialize it. Too, so I don't have like direct comparisons between that. But I remember liking it. I remember loving when when I was was obsessed with the little Barbasol can that Newman had. (laughs) Well, I can't believe you said Newman. There it is. He has it. There you go. Nedry. Yeah. Nedry. I bought Tristan for his birthday. Definitely just shaving cream. That. Just scene might, that scene might have freaked me out too. Traumatized me too. What the Dilophosaurus? Yeah, when he dies. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I think without this, if this movie didn't have the cultural impact it did, I know the research would have came out eventually. But now that we know all this stuff about how dinosaurs actually sound, that they were covered in feathers and stuff like that. Oh I yeah. Know, I don't know birds. if it would have been as significant or as relevant. No. 
Yeah, I think you couldn't make Jurassic Park today. Yeah, I mean, it it has shaped what we are today, I think. Right. Along with stuff like Jaws or Star Wars. At the time, they were, they made Jurassic Park with like the latest information they could use. Just like the big thing that they changed was like what a Velociraptor was and what a, then the size of a Dilophosaurus. And it's frills and stuff. Like this is really, and it's frills. That's about all Uh, it looks like. Yeah. I I haven't seen any of the new yeah. ones, so I don't know if they've sort of included that research in. Like there are tried to. dinosaurs with oh with the, with the, newer Jurassic, the Jurassic World movies, especially yeah. the third one. They they uh they they displayed a fully feathered Velociraptor looking raptor, mm-hmm. but like it was big. Like a real Velociraptor would be the size of a chicken, and its snout doesn't make a like an alligator. Yeah, it doesn't it, its snout looks like curved up in a weird way. Yeah. More like this. Yeah. Like the way that they have yeah. You can see that its nose is blunter. That's more like what an actual snout of a raptor would be, I think, right? Uh, no, go because the way that it's on your uh, that we see it where it crests downwards, yeah, like an is... upside down D, flip it the other way. That's the way that a velociraptor should look. Hmm. I don't know how to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah, they also took away some of the things that they had made mistakes of in the original film for some of these Jurassic World movies. So it is, I think, better science, even though then they get more outlandish. So this is yeah. the f- most gr- down-to-earth Jurassic Park for sure. Um, the pilot episode. Yeah. Um, there's something okay. about it. I think it's just the timing. Like... I was watching the documentary Jurassic Punk that just came out last year that talks about the uh, VFX artists that helped make this such a dynamic film. And uh, the two guys that were the head of the VFX department, uh, they were coming off of Terminator 2 and they had revolutionized how to use CGI for T-1000. So before that, they were like, can we do this with a maquette, like the police officer going through the bars of a jail? And they instead of using green screen around him, they put a grid on him. It was like the first time that had happened. And so utilizing that sort of technology, they could make the movements of the T-Rex with its hips. They figured that out, but then they could apply it on the actual uh, robots that they had made. So they knew how to do movements, say like with the Gallimimus stampede and utilizing both the old and the new at the time they made this film, I think that's why it was the perfect timing. It's, I if it had even been three years later, something else might have come along and revolutionized that CGI technology. So, I think this is just a perfect storm of everything coming together: the right actors, the right director to handle it, the um, technology being perfect, perfect for what you want, you know. And obviously it's advanced even further, but sometimes you utilize that too much, you know? Right. It's an over-reliance and then, you know, it, it seems well, like they definitely took their time with the effects on this one. So that Well, they also, rather than... the smart thing is they took, Stan Winston had that puppet. Yeah. So it's easy to use that as a, uh, a basis for the CGI. So you intermingle the two instead of just yeah. relying entirely on CG. Right. They said they had three teams that were going to work on stuff. And those two guys were like, what if we just use CGI? And so there is more CGI in it. But if you have that baseline of the puppet, they can extrapolate on that. Right. You know, 
Um, yeah, I don't know. What what else do you want to say about it, Jimmy? This is your favorite movie, so this is the time oh, yeah, to no, talk about uh, it. I mean... There, there's time so, to shine, there's, Jimmy. Like, I don't know. I feel like there's so much already that like everybody knows there's so much already on the internet about Jurassic Park. I don't... I, don't I want to know your journey with it. Like, oh, my, how you saw I mean, it. What was your favorite movie before this? Okay, well, in terms of dinosaurs, it was Land Before Time. That's what got me into it. So... Uh, it's because of the land before foot. time that I wanted to see Jurassic Park and I saw it and like a little my warped little mind couldn't handle it but then like a year later when it was on VHS I was like okay I could handle this now said mm. Jurassic Park yeah oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah because like th there was definitely some bits uh like like I said with the velociraptor like popping through the uh uh behind uh Ellie and just almost ripping to her, her to shreds and then like you see uh, Samuel L. Jackson's arm fall on her shoulder, and you're like, oh, a severed arm. That's the first bit of horror I saw as a kid. Mm -hmm. they, they filmed that, or that was a scheduling conflict? A little bit of both. Okay, that's why. Sam, Sam Jackson said he was supposed to come back to the island, but because of all the storms that would come through, his schedule like wouldn't allow him to return. Yeah. So they were going to have a thing. In the novel, he's like in the field and gets attacked. Can I tell you something? That is one of the reasons why I don't... I don't love the movie because I'm like that's such a slasher cliche. Yeah, it's Why would a fucking arm be positioned It's a slasher like that? movie yeah. with dinosaurs. I mean, that, that's, that's a charm. Just, it thinks it's more. It's than just that. Spielberg leaning back charm on his film. old Jaws days. Come if on, it it's just, all Jurassic Park is. It's just land Jaws. If it was yeah. like dual with uh, dinosaurs, that'd be cool. To, but the movie, the first half sets it up to be a little more thought provoking than it actually thinks it is. I don't know. It's fine. It's a popcorn but, flick. With, yeah, it's a, was, I just it's a popcorn flick with some heavy thought behind it. <laughs> Maybe a little too much thought, but you know, it's, I mean, it's, also, no, car, it's no carnosaur. It's also the yeah, first. No. Uh, it's also the first film I had a screen crush on somebody. Ellie. Laura Dern. Laura Dern. Yeah, Laura Dern. Yeah, she's my first screen crush for sure. At age six. How do you think she looked in the number? Uh just fine. There you go. Like a wine. Yeah. Perfect. Everyone complains about her being a last Jedi, and I'm like, you got to see uh, Carrie Fisher and Laura Dirt interact on screen. I don't know what you want more than this. Yeah. So she's people, great. Actress. People are just negative naysayers. So, um, yeah, I uh, I love oh. the film. I wanted to be Ian Malcolm when I was a kid. Well, well, this movie was definitely. The undisputed champion of the box office. Mm -hmm. but Yeah, I still, whenever I look at the box office, when they say something like Super Mario movie has risen to like... Yeah, but the inflation, it, it's not even close. I look at where Jurassic Park is in relation to it, and I think, okay, well, it still would have been number one right now if it came out today, that sort of thing. I mean, going so to I still, is going to be the number one. I'll my level it. is Jurassic Park. But so, uh, uh, It introduced an entire generation... Well, the crazy what thing is, there was, was there was another movie that came out this month that just gonna take a gander at that could, time. that was gonna give it some stiff competition supposedly. Now, don't fall me on this. I tried to do the clone stamp tool again, and it's a little difficult, so I okay. kind of fell back on some old habits. But oh, look at that Jurassic that Park. This is what I'm talking about. I, I fell back on some old habits. I couldn't just erase 
what, what I want to. Mm-hmm. It, like it. it looks like hey, the movie theater's on fire. It looks like the end of Inglorious Bastards right now. <laughs> yeah. I think Jimmy knows this one. Oh, right. yeah. No, I totally know this. Now, I so. wasn't going to be surprised if Jeff just knew what this was. I might. Um, do, you, do you know what it is? Because I won't I, mind. Uh, honestly. And we'll still, I'll still give you a chance to play some other aspects and give you points. If you know what this is right now. All right. I'll give you I mean, I, I have a feeling, but I, I don't know specifically. All right. So let yeah, me. Yeah, what do you think it is? All right. Well, can I let me describe the poster? Sure. First. I so, people listen. Uh, to yeah, there's audio. We're in a movie theater. Uh, there's the crowd is all is all suddenly shocked and, and appalled because there's something seemingly coming out of the screen. The screen is uh covered in various um you know movie tropes. There's a battle axe, there's a dude with a gun, there's, there's a, even a dinosaur. A dinosaur you. back there. And who can forget a helicopter? Just there's a helicopter there. up in the, up on the top, like on the outside of the screen. Um, it's a pretty I'm chopper, pretty sure. Is this last action hero? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Was so, it chopper that gave it away, or just everything you listen? No, it's just everything at once. Like if you had blurred yeah. the whole screen. That's why I'm like, what am I gonna do? Make this just a blurry image? Like it's crazy that. The thing we usually do is we have you guess what this is, but also try to come up with a better film, you know? Like, you know how would you crazy do that? With you can't. Work? It's a perfect movie. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you know what's crazy about this? Is that this movie did not do well. But if you ask anybody of our generation, I thought it did well. Mm-hmm. Because I always loved it. Yeah, because it well, see, we were the prime demographic when it came out. So no, you see what it was is like our, uh, our parents probably looked at it and was like, oh no, that's garbage. There's better movies to take our kids to go see, but we probably wanted to see it. But we ended up seeing those other movies, and then when we finally saw it, like uh, on VHS, because time, I didn't, I didn't see this in theaters. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't see this until yeah. high school, myself. So I, I sort of missed it. I didn't know I, what I, was this, happening. This opened up the week. <laughs> Before or after Jurassic Park? I think I think June eighteenth. I think so. It's a week later. Okay, so yeah, I had no chance. I had no chance. Um, John McTiernan directed it. Shane Black wrote the script. So across the board, it's all all the credentials for everybody's is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Plus, Arnold's coming off of his biggest box office hit which is terminator 2 right so there's there's no reason to think that this isn't going to do well it, it beat until jurassic park came week. along and just wrecked everything it did get 15 million its first week but jurassic park is in its second week and gets 38 that this is this is back when movies could like maintain staying power at the box office which doesn't happen anymore mm-hmm. also things are word of mouth hits where they go up and so... the next week is sleepless in seattle and dennis the menace Right. And so they take the portion that could have been last action here a second week. It falls down to eight, whereas Jurassic Park stays in first at 27. So at this point, Jurassic Park has already made 171, and last action here has finally made three fifths of what Jurassic Park made in its first weekend. Do you think people were just not hip to the idea of Arnold parodying himself? My guess is that adults thought it was more for kids, so they just didn't go, and the kids were going to see Jurassic Park or Dennis the Menace. I think that's all. Honestly- I think it's I the think Karen it's one of best comedic performances. Yeah. I think it's just timing. Maybe if this had come out two weeks earlier, it would get a jump on Jurassic Park. Right. 
and it makes its money back that way. And now you have two choices. So word of mouth would have helped it. But I think it's fine. I think we technically could have said this was a hidden gem because it's underrated. Well, I think a lot of people like it, though, which is weird. Um, that's what I mean. Like, it's adults. Anyone that's our parents' age wouldn't have cared. Right. Even if they liked him. I think, although, like what Jeff was saying, he thinks like Spielberg movies are too long. I think this movie's a little too long, too. It does have pacing issues, especially when he comes into the real world. And also, another thing I wish is that um, I wish they contrasted the movie world with the real world a little bit. Because there's stuff that happens in the real world that's pretty implausible. I'm like, mm-hmm. this would only happen in a movie. Yeah. Um, and also, when they start, when the villain's looking at the paper, looking at showtimes for movies, and you see like Dracula and some other things, and you're like, oh my God, are we going to go into those films? It yeah. It seems almost like a missed opportunity that they didn't go a little bit crazier with it. Funny thing was when I was in high school, I, I had an idea for that sort of thing to happen. And then my friends were like, have you not seen Last Action Hero? Yeah. And then I watch it and I'm like, that doesn't do what I wanted it to. I wanted to go into a couple of films, kind of like stay tuned, but in films. Oh. You, go in, you go into one movie theater and someone keeps jumping from screen to screen in a multiplex. I don't think right. that's ever happened, right? Uh, shocker. It happened. They were doing on TV shows, but yeah, nobody, so the, nobody so remembers again, that. So again, I mean, twice on TV and never in a theater. Right. Mary Melodies did something like that, sort of, except it was jump a bookworm going through books, and I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure it went was... through actual stories. But that's a that's an old trope. That was mm-hmm. Gumby's whole thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gumby, oh yeah, Gumby too. Yeah. Um, Dana DeVito's in this too, you know. Is he plays the animated oh, yeah. cat? I didn't remember that. He's the animated cat. My um, favorite thing in the film is when they go to the video store and Sylvester Stallone is the Terminator. Yeah. That's a good bit. It's funny because uh, even in Twins, they make fun of uh, Stallone. Yeah. He's walking down the street and he sees the poster for Rambo and then he compares his bicep and he laughs at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, this is why I like our... Yeah, the sad part is like as much as I like Stallone, he was never good at picking comedies. Honestly, Schwarzenegger's had a pretty good track record with picking comedies mm-hmm. for the most part, like Twins, this, Kindergarten Cop. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, actually, interestingly enough, weird side note, and this is the 20th, 5th anniversary it would have been if this had gotten produced. Which one? Re- based on this bombing, Arnold was going to do the Hans and Franz movie. Oh. The skit from SNL. Really? They had written the script. He was down for it. It was him parodying himself again because he was going to play their cousin. Okay. But Would he have been like, a big character or like a cameo? He was going to be a third lead. Hmm. They, re- they were hinging the whole movie on him. Hmm. But then uh, this came out tanked and they scrapped the whole pot project which is kind of a shame because i kind of would like to have seen that um as a matter of fact if you're more interested in that conan o'brien just hosted uh a podcast about it called the lost hans and franz movie because he co-wrote the script with robert smigel mm-hmm. and they just did a script reading of it in four parts you can find on like youtube and- oh yeah it says just happened in may yeah they just did it that's funny 
good time probably because it's about 30 years since so they were probably trying it says in the early 90s they were developing it so they probably tried to do it in 93 they were yeah and it says they ultimately declined to participate following last action hero so they were probably trying to do it as a follow-up it could have been his 94 or 95 yeah they were what what does he do next he actually comes back with true lies okay i thought true lies was next next year right it's next year in 94 so so it works i think but imagine if they tried to do hans and franz right away maybe true lies doesn't happen i know so in a so in a way this not doing that well was kind of a godsend yeah because then after that he does (laughs) end of days Uh, oh no that's that's uh, later down the line eraser and the one where he's pregnant the two i haven't seen yeah so he does try to do comedy again too Eraser was the last big one. So I'm looking yeah. at my Arnold section of my DVDs. Oh, that's funny. I got them in chronological order. You just have it there. I, I went to Wikipedia. <laughs> um, yeah, I like Last Action Hero. What about uh, Charles Dance doing a villain thing He's a great... in the early 90s? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I just, because I, I watched our rated movies all the time as a kid. I had just seen him in uh, Alien 3, mm-hmm. where he wasn't the villain. He was a love interest. Yeah. So this is a weird. Because I guess after this, he kind of got typecast as villains. Which is weird, since this film didn't do well. Yeah. Because after this, I don't think he plays much uh, much else in variety. Honestly, this probably could have like launched him into the, the next transfer. Yeah, he could have been the next Jeremy Irons. Bridget Wilson's in it. And I, she, kind of, she kind of had a pretty steady career in the late 90s, if I recall. Yeah. But now she's She's married to Pete Sampras. Mm-hmm. Good for him. No, yeah, so, uh, not good for him. <laughs> uh, what about that kid? I like the kid. I like Austin O'Brien a lot in the movie. I yeah. think that the, one of the major criticisms was people thought he was annoying. Yeah. I think he should come off as zealous and eager. He's in a movie with his favorite action star. One mm-hmm. one byproduct of this not doing well is I wish they had done a standalone Jack Slater movie. Yeah, we we couldn't have done this on the underrated, like hidden Jack. Not really. But like I, like again, I think uh, in hindsight this movie's actually gotten better with age and people have embraced it now. So mm-hmm. the fact they didn't do that well is yeah. nostalgia helps. So I put in the notes because I didn't know who we should pick. But yeah, before, I, I didn't look at the notes. Fuck. I said, oh, wow. I said uh, dealer's choice because I don't know what we should do. Uh, what do you guys think? I mean, we could easily just pick one of the actors and be like, which one's our favorite of theirs? I mean, there's a bunch of poker movies we could do. Oh, yeah. We could, we could pivot, oh, yeah. We could pivot to another thing like what's our favorite movie from one of the Jurassic Park actors just because that's the bigger movie of the, the month, that sort of thing. I don't know. I'm up for anything. Oh, what if? Hang on. I'm looking at Spader's filmography. Now. No, since since he was the real villain, favorite M. Emmett Walsh. Oh, that's good. He no, does have a lot of films. I'm kidding. I don't. Actually, that might be too hard. He's a lot. Yeah. You want me to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Mikey and Nikki. The Elaine May. Yeah, the... you saw it, right? No, I think so. Um, it's Peter Falk, John Cassavetes. I actually don't even remember M. Emmett Walsh being in it, but. Good choice, I guess. I'm looking at his filmography. Okay, wait. I'll pick something where it's recognizable that he's in. Uh, Raising Arizona. 
That's a good choice. I was going to say that either way. Well, that's a good choice. Yeah, I'm just yeah, buttering pick. you up. So, so I'll say Blood Simple, then. Great choice. Honestly, that... <laughs> oh, what? he was in the Flash TV series from 1990? Yes, mm -hmm. he was. Oh. He's been around forever. Dude, he's in 164 movies. Yeah. I'm going to go with Slapshot. I knew you were going to pick that. He has one of my favorite moments. I'm yeah. glad you didn't say my pick before I did, which Man. you often do. If um, I had seen Critters. You know what's funny? I have eight other movies before that. He has the fun. funniest He has the funniest thing in the film where they're just talking about one of the players on the team. They went into the penalty box, and, <laughs> and he's like, he went in there, and he's just like, he's jerking off. He's, he went in the penalty box. Re, Re, Reggie, Reggie, he's not... He's not allowed to do that in the box. And, and Paul Newman was just like, we we have $5 tickets to these games. Do you care what he does in the penalty box? Might be my favorite hockey movie. Yeah. He's not getting it at home. Just let him do it. It's great. Everyone should be watching the ice. Okay, so I go to Raising Arizona. Yeah. Wait a second. What, what are you thinking, Jeff? Why do I think I felt like I used that for different because you love raising arizona you probably did it for john goodman oh, never mind can i change my vote yeah stick with the one you didn't actually see him in uh, i'll go with blood simple then because he's got the best role in that one i'll go with blood simple okay. yeah i'm looking I'm trying to narrow it down that's it i haven't seen anybody play as sleazy he's uh uncredited in midnight cowboy mm-hmm He's a very small part. He's got a hilarious cameo in the which, jerk. which is funny because there's yeah, a original character say, in the movie the, we watched the jerk just recently. Was actually, the jerk was what I was leaning toward. Go oh, ahead, yeah? Jerk. yeah. He's hilarious great, in it. Great choice. Tries to kill him. He must hate these cans. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lie. Go with the jerk. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to. Go with the Iron Giant, Jimmy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's my only option. This really is because that's because when when you said the the dude with the voice, I recognized the voice yeah. from like from my memory. Like what, I much, know what character he is. Much like the music, I, a chance. We all knew where this was headed. Yeah, yeah. like all, all his, I going through the list, all his other stuff. I like, there's like, there's nothing that I remember him from. Mm -hmm. Like he. He blends. Yeah, he in stands as a side out in, in those four films. That's probably yeah. the four that he stands out in the most. I'm gonna be honest. So I think I think we picked it because with the Iron guy. Giants, him and uh uh the guy that does the voice for the general, who's like uh mm -hmm. um, it's uh, uh Fraser's dad. Yeah, Fraser's dad. That was yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. Like don't know them much from anything else, but I, I hear their voices. Like I know what like what characters they were. Mm -hmm. Both great in uh, Coen Brothers films. Oh, yeah. oh Barton Fink. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. We're gonna we're gonna have some returning characters in our next film. Uh, we we did films with both of these people in uh, nineteen ninety actually, and uh, it's a film I've never seen, but was one in the filmography of its star that I'd always wanted to get around to. It's called Rising Sun. It stars Sean Connery, who we covered in Hunt for Red October, and Wesley Snipes, who we covered in uh, King of New York. So who wrote it? I don't know actually. Michael Crichton. Oh, oh, perfect. That's why we picked it originally, because we were going to follow up uh, a month we didn't cover Michael Crichton, 
by covering Michael Crichton. There you go. Yeah, that's cool. I forgot about that. That's very Keep exciting. I'm looking forward to it because I'm, I'm enjoying collecting some uh, '90s films from actors I like a lot yeah. that I just never got around to. So, and it's one that we clearly don't talk about. Everyone's all about The Rock a few years from now. That's like his big '90s thing. He does The Untouchables and then The Rock, and nothing in between. Yeah. So. Anyway, hope you enjoyed our discussion on the highlight of June eleventh, nineteen ninety-three. Yeah. Uh, we'll yeah. be back. We'll be back next month. Like, comment, subscribe. Yeah, but no. Why don't you just say it? I don't need to anymore. Everyone, everyone comments on their own. They know how to do it. Sure, sure. sure. It's just reactionary at this point.